My name is uh, Mark Rowland. I'm one of the churches, uh, one of the churches, one of the pastors here. I guess neither Eric or I can talk today. Yeah. <laughs> you know, um, good leadership is uh, critical to any organization. Uh, I don't know if you've been following the news, but um, Carlos Gons was um, um, released from, well, actually wasn't released. He was smuggled out of a Japanese uh, detention to Lebanon in a piece of luggage. Did you read about that? Yeah, pretty amazing story. Uh, he had been the, um, the CEO of this alliance between uh, Renault and, and uh, Nissan. And uh, in November of 2018, when he um, flew into Japan, he was arrested. And, and uh, they said he was um, uh, guilty of withholding uh, reporting of his income to the government. So he was fired from Nissan. And in one year, um, the value of that company dropped some 28%. And um, uh, it went from one, being one of the best performing car manufacturers to one of the worst in the world. Isn't that amazing? So what happened? Well, Gohan was the glue <laughs> that held this alliance together. So without his leadership, the unity that made this work so well was suddenly gone. You ever been part of an organization that was deeply divided? Maybe it was your place of work. Maybe it was a group of friends. Uh, maybe it was even your family. And, and if you have been a part of something like that, you know what it does, it's it, how it destroys things. It, it saps the energy, the, the cohesion, and, and the joy right out of the group. And nothing gets accomplished. Everything else takes a back seat until that division is resolved. And so one of the primary roles of the leader is to keep everybody aligned around the mission and, and the vision and the values of that organization. Well, today we are picking back up on our 32-week uh, study through the Bible called The Story. And last November, we left off with King Solomon. You may remember that Israel was at her zenith. Uh, wealth and, and wisdom were in abundance. In chapter 10 of 1 Kings, the Bible records that under Solomon's leadership, the king made silver as common as stone, as rocks. So their economy was doing great, high-performing. And so he begins this massive building project. He's building his palaces. He's building the temple where God will be worshipped. He's, he's building new cities. He's building stables for uh, all of his horses. In fact, our archaeology has discovered the remains of those stables that Solomon built. Uh, the Bible, though, also records... Besides all these good things that he was doing, also records the dark side of Solomon's leadership. He used forced labor, slaves, to build all these projects. And the Bible says that his heart became divided. I'm reading from 1 Kings chapter 11. The Lord became angry with Solomon because his heart had turned away from the Lord, the God of Israel, who had appeared to him twice. Although he had forbidden Solomon to follow other gods, Solomon did not keep the Lord's command. So the Lord said to Solomon, Since this is your attitude, 
and you have not kept my covenant and my decrees which I commanded you, I will most certainly tear the kingdom away from you and give it to one of your subordinates. Nevertheless, for the sake of David, your father, I will not do it during your lifetime. He probably took a big sigh of relief at that moment. He said, I will tear it out of the hand of your son. And yet I will not tear the whole kingdom from him, but will give him one tribe for the sake of David, my servant, and for the sake of Jerusalem, which I have chosen. So what happened? Well, Solomon began to incorporate the worship of the neighboring country's idols into his own worship. And these were not benign gods. Uh, the Bible says on a hill east of Jerusalem, Solomon built a place of worship for Chemosh, the detestable god of Moab, and for Moloch, the detestable god of the Ammonites. And, and the reason that the, the uh, author calls them detestable is because both of these religions required human sacrifice. And so Solomon's heart will result in a divided nation. Solomon's divided heart will result in this divided nation. You see, unknowingly, he is sowing the seeds of division. And so a man named Jeroboam, one of Solomon's officials, began to plot against the king. Solomon hears about this, and he tries to have him killed. But Jeroboam flees to Egypt. After Solomon's death, his son Rehoboam ascends the throne, uh, the throne, and Jeroboam returns from Egypt. He's accompanied by some other dissatisfied leaders, and he approaches the new young king with a request. He says, your father put a heavy yoke on us, but now lighten the harsh labor and the heavy yoke he put on us, and we will serve you. You see, the high taxes to, to finance the building projects and the forced labor were more than the population could handle, and they were asking Rehoboam for some relief. So Rehoboam tells them, come back in three days, and I'll give you my answer. In the meantime, he consults with the elders who have served uh, his father Solomon, and they advise him to to be the kind of leader who serves the people. If today you'll be a servant to these people and serve them and give them a favorable answer, they will always be your servants. But then he goes to um, the young Turks. He goes to those young men that he grew up with, and he asks them the same question. How would you respond to Jeroboam's request? And they give the opposite advice. Say to them, my father laid on you a, a heavy yoke, but I'm going to make it even heavier. My father beat you with whips. I, I, I will beat you. I will scourge you with scorpions. And he chooses to listen to their advice. When Jeroboam comes back to the king and, and hears his reply, he leads this revolt. He takes with him the ten tribes in the northern part of the kingdom, leaving Rehoboam with the two southern tribes of, of Judah and Benjamin and with the capital city of Jerusalem. 
Jeroboam, he heads north with his followers to the city of Shechem, and, and they turn it into a, a fortress. And Jeroboam is feeling feel pretty good about, about what's just happened. And, and then he notices that a lot of, uh, of the people in the northern part are, are still going south to, to the temple, to Jerusalem, to worship. And in chapter, 25, or chapter 12 it says, If these people go up to offer sacrifices at the temple of the Lord in Jerusalem, they will again give their allegiance to their Lord Rehoboam, king of Judah, and they will kill me and return. And so Jeroboam realizes that he has to keep this division going and that, that, be, that includes their religious affiliation. And so he, uh, he pulls out the old golden calves and he puts one of them in, in Bethel and one of them in Dan. He says, hey, you, you, you don't have to go to Jerusalem anymore uh, to worship God. You don't have to watch online services. Okay, you can, you can stay right here. Stay right here. You don't have to get out of bed. Stay here or worship here. Worship these gods. And verse 30 says, And this thing became a sin. And it's no better in the southern kingdom. The divided kingdom makes Judah ripe for invasion. The king of Egypt comes and he, he invades the country. He, he sacks the palace. And chapter 14 ends with this verse. There was continual warfare between Rehoboam and Jeroboam. Rehoboam will die. His son Abijah becomes king. Uh, 1 Kings 15 says his heart was not fully devoted uh, to the Lord his God. And he rules for three years. He dies and, and his son Asa becomes king. And under his leadership, the southern kingdom experiences this, this rebirth, this, this renaissance of, of the worship of God. And the author says Asa's heart was fully committed to the Lord all of his life. And so the point that the author of, of Kings is making is this, that a, a solid faith in the truth will bring unity. The northern kingdom never experiences this. They last about 200 years. They have, they have assassination. They have coups. They have a number of kings. Finally, they are destroyed by the Assyrian Empire about 722 B.C. The southern kingdom lasts about 350 years until it is sacked and burned in 586 by the Babylonians. Babylonian Empire. Israel will never really be free from foreign domination again. You see, leadership is so important to any organization. Author, speaker, and leadership coach Liz Wiseman says that there are two types of leaders. There's the diminisher and then there's the multiplier. Uh, the diminisher is always focused on themselves and their needs rather than on others. It's about their goals and it's about their achievements. Uh, they make you question your intelligence. They shut down the talents uh, of the teams. They would never think of developing somebody else's gifts. The diminisher sets up his or her team for failure or at very best, very limited success. And maybe you've worked for somebody like that. You ever worked for a diminisher? And you come home from work every day and you are drained and you feel dumb and you're exhausted. But maybe you're fortunate enough to work for a multiplier. Uh, this kind of leader makes you feel smart. This kind of leader makes you feel capable. 
they ensure that the, the right people are in the right positions for the job. And you come home excited and you come home energized. And, and every morning you can't wait to get up and, and go to work again. In fact, you may even be blessed to be, to be married to a multiplier. Or um, maybe you even uh, have a, a parent or a best friend who's a multiplier. But the essential trait of a multiplier is this. It's humility. Now, Jesus was the ultimate multiplier. In the first century Roman Empire that Jesus was born into, humility was not a virtue. Uh, the rich and the powerful were not expected to be humble. Historian Robin Lane wrote this. He said, among pagan authors, humility has almost never been a term of commendation. It was not an admired quality like it is today. So you can imagine how radical Jesus' teachings would have been to his first century listeners. I mean, imagine what a revolutionary idea Mark chapter 10 would have been when Jesus said, whoever wishes to become great among you must be your servant. And whoever wants to be first must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Folks, when, it, when, his, when the crowd heard those words, when his disciples heard that, it would have been so counterculture. You see, our natural response is always to look out after ourselves. I mean, our world is obsessed with power and position. Our world says to be great, you have to be demanding, be domineering, uh, have your own way. You know, step on or step over people who, who get in your way. The world says demand your rights, demand that your needs be satisfied, demand that your goals be met, demand that everyone else give you what you want. And then Jesus comes along and, 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 and he teaches that the person who's really serious about being a leader has to have this whole different set of values. And so Jesus comes in and he, he turns uh, the, the idea of leadership upside down. That the Christ-like leader is the one who is focused on helping others discover their God-given dreams. Jesus and unapologetically and with no ambiguity whatsoever, calls each and every one of us in this room today to that kind of standard. Jesus says to us, I want you to be different from the rest of the world. I want you to do things that normal, pride-filled people would never think of doing. See, Jesus is calling you and I to leave behind our, our concerns about social status, about titles, about positions, about my wants, about my desires, and to intentionally make kindness and service a lifestyle. To do even simple, small things in ways that are uncharacteristic and, and unexpected by the rest of the world, but that lift the dignity of all. That is a multiplier. Now God has a dream for this world, and that dream is unity. And we get a glimpse of it in, in Psalm 133. It says, how good and pleasant it is when brothers and sisters live together in unity. Now I don't know about you, but in my family of six siblings, we did some fighting. 
Anybody else have that issue growing up? Maybe right now, you know, you have some differences of opinions, you know, with your siblings. But you know that that's very biblical. <laughs> In fact, the very first family, what happened to those two brothers, Cain and Abel, remember? Didn't go so well for them, did it? And then there's Jacob and Esau, and there's Joseph and his brothers, and there's David and his brothers. In the New Testament, I talked a couple weeks ago about two sisters who had a hard time getting along. Remember Mary and Martha? Got into an argument right there in front of Jesus. Man, if you're going to have an argument, don't do it in front of Jesus, you know. Even Jesus had problems with his siblings. Did you know that? At one point, the Bible tells us that his, his brothers went to Jesus and they tried to drag him back home because they thought he was kind of crazy, saying some strange things. Come on, Jesus. Come on home. Mom says, come home. Time to lock you up in your bedroom. And church, it's no different, is it? Right? I mean, let's face it. Your fellow brothers and sisters in the pews are not always that fun to be with. Am I right? See, here's the thing. We don't stop being sinners the moment that we profess faith in Christ. We don't suddenly all become well-dressed. We don't all of a sudden become brilliant conversationalists with the same taste, with the same styles, with the same political opinions. You see, the, the truth is, this is going to shock some of you. But the truth is, is that sometimes I'm cranky. <laughs> you know, sometimes I'm dull. So, sometimes I'm, I'm highly opinionated. The truth is that sometimes I don't even like being around myself. I made this discovery when I was... Uh, the youth pastor here back in the, in the late 70s. I was fresh out of seminary. And I would load up about 60 kids on a bus and we'd go off for a, a week-long retreat. You know some of those, didn't you, Joyce? And, and we'd be so full of love and good feelings and, and somebody would have their guitar on the bus, probably Rob Keller. We'd be singing, Kumbaya, my Lord, Kumbaya. By Wednesday, <laughs> everything had fallen apart. There'd be bickering and there'd be, there, there, there'd be fighting and jealousy and, and hurt feelings. And we adults, we'd be working overtime trying to help the students repair the strained relationships. And after doing several of these treats, it was like an aha moment. It was like, oh, this is normal. This is natural. Why? Because it took us three days to discover that we were not a group of perfect people. That we weren't perfect saints. That some of us are kind of annoying. And so finally by Thursday we would realize how imperfect that we all were and that it was okay. See, we can't love ideal people, can we? There's no such thing. But we can love imperfect brothers 
and sisters. Years ago, Melinda and I uh, traveled to England. One of the places that we visited was Lincoln Castle. Uh, Later on, the castle was converted to a prison. And in the prison, there was a chapel. And each seat in the chapel was this box. It kind of reminded me of of an upright coffin with the very top of it cut out so that the prisoners could look and, and see the preacher up there. But they couldn't see anybody else. They were totally isolated. They were, they were locked in the, in the box, and they had no way of seeing who else was there. There's a picture of it up there. Now, A lot of us introverts would actually love a sanctuary like that. I mean, to be able to come in and sit in a box and not have to talk with that chatty extrovert that we sit beside that's so annoying. And it would certainly be a lot easier to have unity in the church. But I'm not sure that's exactly what Jesus had in mind. And what Jesus had in mind can be found in in John chapter 17. It's a prayer of Jesus. It's called the high priestly prayer. And he's preparing his disciples for his death. And and in this we get a glimpse of what's on his mind. And this this is the most important thing for Jesus to get across to his disciples as he's getting ready to die. And what his concern is, is for the relationships they have with each other. It's for unity. And this is his prayer, verse 22. I have given them the glory that you gave me, that they may be one as we are one. I in them and you in me, so that they may be brought to complete unity. So this is amazing. Jesus is praying that his disciples would experience the same kind of unity, that same kind of oneness that God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit had had for all of eternity. And Scripture kind of shows us what that looks like. It's about mutual encouragement. It's about honoring each other. It's about supporting each other as we go through the ups and downs of life. It's about love. And in this kind of community, in the church, it's where the heart starts to come alive for a lot of us for the very first time. Now, here's the thing. As important as it is for the followers of Christ to give and experience this unique kind of unity, this this relationship, this unity that Jesus prays for, there's another reason for it. In verse 23, this is what Jesus says, Then the world will know that you sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. So that unity in the church was for a purpose. So the world could see it and see in that unity Jesus himself. And so unity is, it's compelling. How we love each other, even with our differences, will impact whether or not the world believes in what we're saying about God. That's how high the stakes are. And I believe that God has called this church to build that kind of relational, transforming community where people are experiencing, yes, that oneness with God, but where we're also experiencing that oneness 
with each other. And it's a community of faith that is so satisfying, it is so unique, and so compelling that our community, our city, will want to be a part of it. And it only happens when Christ is first in our hearts. See, that's what happened to Solomon. His heart became divided. The result, his nation divided. Because here's what I've learned, that any division in my heart will eventually show up in my relationships. When, when I don't have my relationship with God the way it should be, it'll begin to show up in my marriage, begins to show up in my friendships, begins to show up in my relationships with my kids. It just, it's just what happened. So when my relationship with God is not what it should be, it affects my relationships with others. Now, does that mean that there's never going to be division? Well, in John's Gospel, chapter 6, Jesus says some rather controversial things. And it causes division within his followers. And verse 66 says this, From this time... Many of his disciples turned back and no longer followed him. So he says some controversial things. People began to leave. And Jesus turns to the, to the twelve, to those he is closest to. And he says these words, are you going to leave me too? You see, he, he's wondering if his best friends we're going to leave as well. Were they going to leave when the teaching got tough, when the crowds began to disappear, when the opposition begins to coalesce? And Peter stands up and speaks for all of them, and he says, Lord, where are we going to go? You have the words of life, and we know who you are. We know that you are the Holy One of God. And I think Peter speaks for all of us who have encountered God's grace in Jesus. You see, Peter and, and the other disciples had pretty much left everything. They left homes. They left jobs. They even left families to follow Jesus. Peter's saying, we're not turning back. Peter's saying, bridges have been burned behind us. You see, once you have a relationship with, with Jesus, you don't want to go back anymore to that old way of, of living or to go anyplace else for that matter. You see, I, th I think that if we, if we knew beyond a shadow of a doubt that Jesus was who he says he is, if we knew beyond a shadow of a doubt that Jesus was the Son of God, if, if we could be com completely convinced that following Jesus would lead to an eternity of bliss and, and worship and joy in the presence of the Lord, I think we would do whatever it takes. We, 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 would, we would swim any ocean. We would climb any mountain. We would give away all of our possessions if we knew for absolute certainty that Jesus is who he said he was. But you know what? The, the way of faith is not like that, is it? It wasn't that way for his disciples. I mean, think about it. They saw all the miracles. They saw the signs. They saw the wonders. They, they heard the anointed teaching. They saw Lazarus come back from the dead. Heck, they saw Jesus come back from the dead. And yet in, in Matthew chapter 28, 
when Jesus is with the eleven and he's about ready to ascend, ascend back into heaven for the last time, Matthew writes this, when they saw him, they worshipped him. But some doubted. What? <laughs> what do you mean? They're still not 100% sure? Yeah, that's what it means. And yet Jesus chose them to continue his movement and to build his church. So I would say doubts are okay. We're never going to be 100% certain. And that doesn't disqualify us. But eventually, they choose to know, and they believed that Jesus was the Christ. You see, choosing to know and believe is a choice that we have to make, just like the disciples made. So here's what I would say. I would say that there are a few guarantees in life, and most of us, we, we know that. But the one guarantee we do have is that if we put our faith in Jesus, that he will never fail us. And he guarantees that if you will align your heart with his message of truth, he will stake his life on your eternity. Jesus guarantees that if you put your trust and your hope in him, and if you will make him number one in your life, he will guide you to an eternity of bliss and joy. let me ask you, are you willing to be done with a divided heart? Are you willing to say no to yourself and to say yes to God? And are you willing to do whatever it takes to be 100% committed to his leadership? And are you willing to commit yourself this group of people here, a group of imperfect people who are also committed to his leadership. If you are, it begins by surrendering your life to Jesus, 100%. And you know what? You don't have to have everything figured out to do that. It's not what you know. It's about our relationship with God. You don't have to get your life together first. You don't have to clean up your act first. Jesus will do all that. All he's asking is that you'll trust him. He's asking for that attitude of surrender. He's saying to us today, come as you are. Come with your doubts. Come with your failures. Come with those broken relationships. Come with that division. Give it to me. I'll do the rest. If you're ready for that step, bow your heads with me, would you? Lord, we surrender. This morning we choose to surrender our doubts, our fears, our preferences, our opinions. God, today we choose to surrender our desires, our very lives to you. And so take us 
and use us as imperfect as we are for your glory and for your kingdom work. And oh God, make us one as you, the Father, and the Holy Spirit are one. Amen.